You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is that we've made some progress on a male birth control pill. They're now making a, well, at least I should say researchers are making a once daily capsule that suppress reproductive hormones in men. So according to the small study, anyway, it might work. It's called dimethandrolone undecoinate, undecoinate, or DMAU, which is how I would always pronounce it from here on, which reduces levels of hormones like testosterone necessary for sperm production. And during the time of the study, the 83 men who tried it didn't have problems that come with a dramatic drop in testosterone. Things like feeling like crap, having no zest for life, losing muscle mass, and uh, probably other bad things like that. Uh, so I got to tell you, even though this is a new study, what a terrible, terrible idea. Because messing with your hormones to control reproduction is like one of the like worst ideas ever, especially for women who have more dramatic hormone swings than men. So even though we're now working on this, wouldn't it be great to have birth control uh, for men? Uh, that would be a pill. Yes, if it wasn't a pill that harmed other systems in the body. So every time I hear about stuff like this, it sort of just makes me want to poke myself in the eyes with pencils because let's not let's not destroy hormones in men or women uh, by using uh, basically potent steroids. There's got to be a better way for us to do birth control. And in fact, I've written some things about this and having written a book on fertility that includes both men and women, like what's going to happen if you want to have kids, if you've been taking this pill? So like, there's got to be a better way. So maybe DMA use it. I just don't think so. This was reported on Science News. Dave, I've been wearing a bunch of wearable devices for the last few years, and I found that that's a really effective contraceptive as well. It just it just works. That, that's a fair <laughs> point. By the way, you're listening to Manish Sethi, uh, and I'll give an introduction in a second. I wear those toe shoes, you know, the, those five-finger toe shoes. Those are also a very effective uh, form of male contraception. I wear those exactly. around. I got nothing to worry about. And, or weighing 300 pounds also, for me, was a very effective way to reduce my dating frequency. Uh, so, Natural <laughs> techniques. Yeah, I don't know. This is sort of a thing for me. Messing with your hormones in a way that isn't about making you live a long time and feel really good is just a terrible trade-off for almost anything. And just the entire history of doing that, like, oh, look at the increase in cancer risk when you do that. And women, like, let's not do the same thing to men. Uh, and you know, let's let's find better ways to do this because if we have the right mindset when we're trying to solve problems like this, 
And the mindset is, how do we improve quality of life and solve the problem? You come up with a very different solution than how do you solve the problem ignoring all their variables. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. Well, since you guys already heard Manish, um, who is an expert in forms of male birth control, I may say that <laughs> uh, being, a, uh, being a friend of his, uh, Manish is a, a founder of, of uh, Pavlock. Pavlock is a Boston-based virtual company now that makes hardware, software, and web service things that helps habit change. And you might have heard of Pavlock because I've talked about it before. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago when you were on, Manish. Mm -hmm. But he makes a, a device, and I have one of the first prototypes, that you wear around your wrist that shocks you when you have a bad habit. And it, it's kind of like this idea of snapping yourself with a rubber band, the way your grandmother might have said when you have a bad habit, but much more neurologically interesting to the body. The body doesn't really like these. They're relatively mild shocks. And if you ever meet Manish and he's still wearing that same thing, you could just walk up and push a button you can <laughs> on Facebook. And, uh, and he sort of runs around uh, twitching a few times here and there because I think whenever his customer support queue is too big, he gets shocked. <laughs> but what happened is back in 2012, Manish had a productivity experiment and he went to Craigslist, hired a woman to come to his house and slap him in the face anytime he went on Facebook uh, when he should have been working instead, which is an extreme way of dealing with ADD. Uh, they have medications for them. <laughs> uh, and and it, it went viral about that. And he came up with this idea that said, hey, maybe negative stimulus is part of habit formation. And it turns out there's great, great research that says our bodies respond more strongly to negative stimulus. And even some of the brain training um, that that I do with neurofeedback involves negative stimulus because we're like 20, I'm making that number up, but 10 or 20 times more responsive to negative stimulus than positive stimulus because negative stimulus might kill you. So you might be able to train away a bad habit by avoiding it more easily um, than the approach that I often take, which is you remove the desire in the first place for it um, at a low, low neurological level. So Manish started this company. Um, he's a, he studied at Stanford, has written a bunch of books, and has done a lot of work in psychology and he writes a blog called Hack the System. So he's, he's a guy who's very diverse, uh, does whatever looks interesting to him, uh, including, and I got to introduce you this way, Manish, including <laughs> tell the judges on Shark Tank who want to invest that he wouldn't take their money. Uh, did I get that right? <laughs> Something like that. Just one of the judges, just uh, Kevin O'Leary. The only one who wanted to invest. Something like that. 
All right. Let, let's start with that. All right. So Manish, you've got this funky company that's like, I've got a wrist a wristband that tracks a bunch of things. By the way, you have your new one out that tracks all sorts of cool things like sleep and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But we'll get into that later. But now you've got like national attention and you've actually got a Shark Tank judge who wants to invest. And what did you tell him? So when I came to the show, I knew coming in that there was no way I would take any investment from Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, the evil looking guy who sits in the middle. Um, because, <laughs> and, Why? Uh, and the main reason was because uh, of his background. Um, he was on TV saying that three billion people making a dollar a day is a good thing, that it makes them strive harder to succeed. And our company is really about redistributing the ability to, it's like about redistributing resources and giving every single person the ability to succeed. And so for me, I find that when you take an investment, it's never just about the money. It's really about the person that you're taking the investment from. And he and I were just not ethically aligned and I couldn't work with somebody who I wasn't ethically aligned with. That was the main reason. Uh, and so you sort of told him this on national TV, just, uh, just for fun. It wasn't just for fun. I mean, <laughs> it, it was like, I mean, if, and if you watch the show, they, they do, it was, I think the most viewed ever clip of all time. Right. Um, they definitely took my 50 minutes of filming and cut it down to seven minutes and they make me look quite rude. Um, but it wasn't that rude. If you actually listen to the words and don't listen just to the zooming in and audio effects, um, it's actually, I think, very polite how I described, how I explained that I didn't want to work with him. But uh, yeah, it came across as me being very rude. I would agree with that. Well, the reality TV, they, they do that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, and he swore at you on the air, as I understand. Right? Yeah, he said, F you, you a-hole, F you. <laughs> and I believe he teared up a little bit, which makes me a little proud. But uh, <laughs> Manish, you are nothing if uh, if not unpredictable. Wait, I mean not predictable. Whatever I'm trying to say there, uh, <laughs> you uh, you pretty much do. Well, just since I've known you, you kind of just do what comes to mind. Is that because you're ADD? I mean, by your own admission, you're pretty darn ADHD. Uh, what what's going on with that? I mean, was this planned or was this just like you know it just felt like the right thing to do and and you just kind of went with what felt right at the time? Like like what 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 drives your decision making on something at that scale? Well, for that that was uh, I, I, I don't want to say it definitely didn't come out as it was planned, but I had known coming in that I wouldn't work with Mister O'Leary. Um, I don't think I, I've tamed most of my symptoms of ADD thanks to you know all the work I've been doing with Pavlock. Um, the kind of design around the company is I'm trying to build a product for me and fixing my own, what I used to think were problems or disorders, which now I've come to understand are actually superpowers when corralled and utilized effectively. Those might in some cases make me look like I'm unpredictable, but I think that everything follows uh, along a path. It's a path that's up and to the right with some you know, sine wave uh, diversions along the path, but everything is along the same way. And so for, for with regards to investing, so for example, Dave, uh, you're an investor in Pavlock, right? Yep. And uh, one of the early, early guys, I was like, this is too crazy not to be a small investor. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the, the reason why is because you and I are, we're both ethically aligned and we're both aligned on what we believe in, which is helping people get better through biohacking and through taking control of our own bodies. For Kevin O'Leary, he's really focused on making money no matter what. And for me, Money is the byproduct. It's really the effect that we have on the world that is the product. And there's just no way I could work with somebody who was like that. 
I haven't seen him. I've, I've only seen your clip on Shark Tank and a couple others. So I, I actually don't know Kevin. I've never met him, but uh, um, it'd be interesting to chat with him someday. Someday. <laughs> but keep going. <laughs> like um, a month a month previous, I was supposed to be on a different episode with Damon John. And uh, Damon John was on, uh, I had won the Shopify Build a Business competition that year. So about a month mm-hmm. and a half before the show aired, I spent a week with Damon John on Richard Branson's Private Island, Necker Island. Yep. And Damon John used Pavlock. He got over two addictions with Pavlock. I've met him three times. He's been a huge fan. Uh, and so it was pretty disheartening to actually have helped one of the sharks and then come and, and the output of the Shark Tank show comes across with me seeming like I'm not a you know good person or not uh, a one with the shark. So that was a, it was a really interesting turn of events, but you know, and, and Damon, Damon John's a really good human being. He's a great you know, he, person. He was on, he was on the show a while back and I got to spend some time with him and, and just, just a helping person. And there's, there's two different kinds of, of investor mentor types. Like there's the people who are just motivated by making positive change happen and, and they'll, they'll help you whether there's something in it for them or not. And if, if there is something great and there's other people who are like, what's in it for me all the time. And Exactly. I, I mean, everyone out there, if you're ever working with investors or just a mentor or advisor, you want the people who just get joy from helping uh, and the people who know how to make money because there are people who help everyone and never make a nickel. <laughs> uh, and then they're actually not helping themselves because if you're, you know, if you know that your next meal is paid for, you'll probably be a more helpful person. And, and I believe that that's true in all of society uh, where we've got to handle those basic needs. Absolutely. And, and so, okay. Uh, all right. And now you've, you've been running a company for four years and you first started out with this. Uh, we're just going to say create a, uh, create a, a, an unconscious neurological fear response to things that, that your body believes are satisfying things like, you know, checking Facebook all the time or, uh, basically bad habits. And, and that's a very potent technique, but I think you've evolved a little bit since then. What, what's your take on motivation and and habit formation like like where where's your head now sure so at our core our company is uh got one core statement that we say every day and our mission is to upgrade humanity and we do that in three ways the first way is to break the habit that break the bad habits that hold us back the second is to form the good habits that make us who we could be and the third is to add subconscious knowledge by converting digital information into subconscious senses letting us learn faster and become superhumans um, and so those are the three things that we focus on as a, I mean, this company is an 80 year company of my life, plus hopefully the last outlive me. And so you're only going to live to 80, Are you 80 plus years. I'm, I'm 30 now. So I'm going to 110 minimum, but I'm sure by then I'll have my consciousness inside of a machine that can live forever. God willing. Um, uh, you're one of those brain upload guys, <laughs> you and Aubrey de Grey, I, I tell you. You're already uploaded, man. Just figure it out. I believe we live in a video game, but that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But so, no, the way I, the way I look at it, you're asking me about motivation. Um, early on in the, in the beginnings of Pavlock and actually before I started Pavlock, I was a big habit formation guy. Uh, what I did was I focused on helping people achieve uh, positive habit formation and forming a habit and breaking a bad habit are two different things. Um, yes, I found out by doing the slapping post and then a bunch of different experiments with our users that the best way to get someone to start doing a good habit was by adding a negative reinforcer. So if you add a bet and say, I bet that I'm going to go to the gym every day for the next 30 days, or you have a punishment, like my phone will shut off if I don't go to the gym, uh, it becomes very easy to get people to start doing a habit. 
but then by rewarding them as they do that habit. So you start off with a bet, and then when they get to the gym, they have friends there, they start to feel good, maybe they listen to an audiobook every time they go to the gym. That habit becomes permanent. It starts to stick. So negative reinforcement starts the habit, positive reinforcement makes it stick. And so when we first started off with the Pavlock product, the idea was driven by that uh, goal of helping people break bad habits and for, uh, helping people form good habits. Um, very early on in the Pavlock uh, days, we discovered the science of aversion therapy. Um, aversion therapy was a pretty common way to quit bad habits in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Uh, and basically what it was was if you wanted to quit smoking or quit nail biting or quit ne negative thoughts, you would go to a therapist. The therapist would have you do the behavior on purpose, like smoking a cigarette, while uh, self-administering a zap at every puff of the cigarette. And what would happen is just like a Pavlovian dog or if anybody has ever gotten really drunk off of a tequila, for example, and gotten so sick they never wanted to drink tequila again, um, it creates a Pavlovian association in the basal ganglia reptile part of your brain. This one night of over drinking and getting nauseous can lead to never drinking that alcohol again. And when we discovered that and we started looking at some of the old studies on aversion therapy, we were finding results above 50% cessation in less than a week. So people trying to quit smoking or quit nail biting uh, or quit eating sugar would follow a five-day protocol. And a year later, fewer than half of them would have touched a cigarette or would have bitten their nails. And the numbers are, those are astronomical numbers. We're talking about the difference between 7.5% effectiveness when you use nicotine patches every day for six months versus 60, 60 plus percent or 50 plus percent success rate on quitting smoking after just five or six days of being zapped. And when we saw that happening, we were like, whoa, that's a big deal. And no one in the world is solving bad habits or addictions at speed and scale. And we can do all of them in one fell swoop. So we decided to double down from 2014 until 2000 and uh, early 2017 to double down on bad habit cessation. And we've gotten very good at it. So right now we've helped, we've helped thousands of people quit smoking, quit nail biting, quit unhealthy eating. Um, those are our big ones. Uh, sleeping in is the number one by far, which is hitting the snooze button. Uh, and so that was what we started off with. And now recently, we've begun to bring back in the forming good habits section. So I learned very early that in order to form a good habit, you need a positive reinforcer. And to me, it was pretty simple. We should be rewarding people with a point system or a currency or what would eventually become a cryptocurrency in my mind. Uh, and so we started giving people a digital point system, a digital currency that we call volts. And so the way it works right now is when someone commits to a new habit, they simply put down a bet. They bet between one and 10,000 volts a day. And every day that they actually follow through with their behavior, they win back their gamble and they win volts from the people who failed. And we've created a pretty elegant 85% plus success rate on people who are forming new habits, which I'm pretty proud of. That's, uh, that's pretty legit. I look at energy that goes into something. And Right now, a certain amount of energy in your brain goes into a, a craving or a desire. Like, let's say it's for a, a cigarette, or you just you have this kind of unquenchable desire to uh, to bite your nail, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And then that took some neurological that, that that's like electrons mm -hmm. for the urge to happen. Now, my preferred approach on on many habits, but probably not those two is to say, well, you know, what, what's driving the habit? Let's, let's change the pattern recognition system. Like, let's, let's edit the code so that the urge isn't there, which then 
requires the least amount of electrons mm-hmm. to be made in your mind. But if what happens is the urge comes, and then after the urge, you get like a fear response because the body's like, oh, every time I feel that urge, I get shocked. Now, isn't that going to take twice as much energy? So like all throughout the day, every time you think about smoking, you get like a little surge of cortisol because your body's like, oh, get ready to get you know, to get a little electrical thing. By the way, we should just tell people, we're not talking about a stun gun here. Oh, yeah. It's like a rubber band on your wrist. It's like a snap of a rubber band. It, it's a small thing. It doesn't leave a mark. And it's programmable. Like it, it's mildly uncomfortable, but it's enough to get your attention. Yeah, it's it's like um, it's like any sort of – basically the body responds and the brain responds a lot more to the possibility of loss or the possibility of punishment than it does by, to reward. It's called loss aversion. You definitely have, have seen that people will um, not want to lose money more than they want to gain money. Um, but the, the, the training period is only five to seven days, and then it's followed up by – nothing. The craving just disappears. It's kind of like when you're a child uh, and you know how you probably, when you were, when you were fatter, you, you like, whenever you saw a burger, you wanted that burger and you thought about the burger. And if you didn't have one, you'd think about sure. it. And probably now, uh, uh, now you just don't think about it. Like it just doesn't cross your mind in yeah. the same way. That's what happens with the cravings for nail biting or smoking. It just doesn't cross your mind anymore. It, it just disappears, which is the beauty of it. And so we, the, like, like you said, um, obviously getting rid of the trigger is always a smart idea. Getting rid of the trigger and adding that response of the uh, of the zap for the training period, followed up by continuing uh, to add that zap for a few days after the training period is complete, kills the habit dead in the brain. It just you don't you just don't want it anymore. It's a really really interesting response, and it's hard to explain. But once you've gone through it, if you've ever made a bet about something with a friend, you know how your mind just won't stop thinking about it until you've won. It's like uh, if you yep. say if you commit to going to the gym or you commit to doing something for your boss, you just won't stop thinking about it until it's done. That's what happens. Uh, it makes you much more aware of your thinking process. No longer do you just automatically find your nails inside of your mouth if you're a nail biter, but you just become aware for the first few days that it's happening, and then slowly it just disappears. And that's kind of the, um, the goal that we have, which is silent habit change. Interesting. So your assessment of this is that the urge stops, so they basically cancel each other out rather than uh, rather than it being more of those like the urge always happens, you always get a resistance. Yeah, it's to much it. much faster than people who try to use like nicotine patches, for example, but they still crave that habit of going outside and taking a break and moving their hands up and down towards their mouth. That desire goes away. But we also teach in our course. Uh, it's not you know just a zap. There's a cognitive behavioral therapy um, angle of the teaching of how to do it. We teach you to meditate focus on the pain, then focus on the success, then focus on moving your hand away from your mouth and onto your right leg, move it away a few times. So you start to replace the habit with, you'll see, you'll see our, our users start to bring their, like on day three or day four, they'll bring their hand to their face and naturally their hand just kind of does this motion where it goes onto their right leg because we teach them to do that. And it becomes kind of automatic. It's pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll buy that. I, I, did, I did have the device... But I was like, I don't have any habits. No, you're perfect. <laughs> I don't have any left <laughs> that I want to break. I was like, what, what am I going to work on with this? Yeah. And you're, so you're, you're level two or level three of our upgrade humanity uh, paradigm, I suppose. Form good habits and, and increase subconscious knowledge. Yeah. And there's also something about where habits are unthinking things. And what I'd like to do is build more awareness mm-hmm. where like, I, I have choice and, and a habit is something that's made without choice. So I, I tend to focus on like algorithms where like I'm going to choose to do that and I, I found the very best thing. Like like I don't 
I don't pile the dishes in the sink mm-hmm. because then I have to move the damn things to use the sink and it actually is a huge waste of life. So I put them next to the yep. sink and then when I want to do them. So this is the, it's not a habit. It's a best practice for saving time in the kitchen. And the difference between a habit, which is kind of an unthinking thing you do, even if it doesn't serve you and an effective algorithm that you do because it works best and you do it sort of with that, without uh, it, it's somehow different than a habit. Do you come across this in your work at all? That that like mindfully choosing to do something that is a best practice versus having a habit where you do it without mindfully choosing to do it. Yeah, this is like unconscious competence that becomes conscious competence or um, vice yeah. versa. It's it's unconscious incompetence becomes conscious, conscious competence when you start to be mindful of it. But if you do that behavior for enough days in a row, it becomes unconscious competence. Um, and that's the act of habit formation. So um, maybe a, a tiny bit of background in habit formation would be really interesting to your users. Yeah, let's uh, talk about that. Sure. So I gave a keynote talk at the Royal Society of Medicine once on how to form good exercise habits in the brain. And what it was basically focused on was the models of changing behavior one time and the models of making a habit, which combined together created our, our model. So Forming a habit, people have given you uh, the, the, the fundamental, there's only one variable in forming a habit, and that variable is consistency. So if you do an action several days in a row, eventually you reach what's called the maximum level of automaticity, which is when it's harder to not do the habit than to do the habit. A good example of this is brushing your teeth. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners, and, and probably you, debatable, uh, brush your teeth each morning. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I, I replace my teeth with nanobots. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Good way to do it. Um, and you, and if you don't brush your teeth, if you leave the house without brushing your teeth, you, you feel this weird kind of sensation in your mouth. And that sensation isn't real. Like human, the human species have been around for over 70,000 years and we never didn't have toothbrushes for more than 69,100 of those years. We just got toothbrushes recently. And somehow if you grow up brushing your teeth and you don't brush your teeth, it just feels strange. And that's what a habit is. And so a study out of the University College of London decided to see how long does it take to form a habit. They let several dozen other user, other people do a bunch of different habits, and they measured how long it took before it became automatic. And they found that a simple habit, like drinking a glass of water, took about 21 days to form a habit. And a difficult habit, like doing 50 sit-ups after breakfast, would take something like 84 days. The average was 66 so when you hear those numbers that it takes 21 days to form a habit or 66 days to form a habit, it all comes from the study. And what they found basically was that how difficult the habit was was directly correlated to how long it took for that habit to form. So I broke that down into how do we make it so that the 50 sit-ups is a lot of sit-ups to do, but one sit-up is actually not that hard to do. What if we could break down a long, a very difficult habit into its component parts and then help people by layering those habits slowly, one on top of another. And we did this by, uh, we did like a gym challenge where we took people who wanted to go exercise every day for 30 minutes. And we basically, I think it was like 200 people in our test cohort. And what we did is we said, okay, for the first week, you simply have to go outside in your gym clothes and lock the front door and send a photo of yourself in your gym clothes. The second week, you have to lock, your, lock the front door and swipe your gym card at the gym the third week, you have to spend 10 minutes there. And the fourth week, you have to spend 30 minutes there. And if you and we had like a, a Facebook message group for each of the people doing these competitions. And if you do do it every day in a row, at the end of the week, you get to buy yourself a gift. 
And if you don't do it, you have to pay $50 to your other competitors. So we made it so you would, if you didn't just simply go outside in your gym clothes and lock the front door, you'd have to pay 50 bucks. We made it so the act was so easy to do, you couldn't fail. And so stupid to fail, why would you? That we had, I think, like about 100% of people did the first week. And by the end of the month, we had a 80% success rate on people who had followed through with every single one of those steps. They had slowly built up to the full habit they wanted to do. At that point, we ended the bet challenge and we just continued to monitor and see how long they maintained that habit. And 80% of those 80% of the people maintained the habit for the full 60 days. And another 80% of that group maintained it for 90 days. It was above 50% of people went to the gym 90 days in a row. And all they had to do was go outside in their gym clothes and lock the front door. And so that was kind of the kind of understanding for me about how habit formation is created. The best way to form a habit is to break down your habit into its component parts, build up to the goal of the habit, and add a disincentive specifically for that first month to make sure that you actually achieve that first month. Then it becomes autopilot. It does make sense. Now, I'm a little concerned. I used to really be into this, and uh, full disclosure, I used to also have OCD in addition to ADD and the whole Asperger's thing going on. But I was like, you know, I keep forgetting my keys. And so I just developed this habit where every time I'd leave the house, I would check my pocket mm-hmm. for my keys. Like I just you know, run, rub my hand over my pocket to make sure that they were there. So I didn't get locked out anymore. And I could always get into my car. It was really effective. But then I found I was checking like a hundred times a day to see if my keys were in my pocket just unconsciously. Yep. So the problem with habits is that unthinking part of the habit. How do you know that people are installing the right habits and that they're doing them the right amount? That's our goal with the Pavlock app. So we monitor as much as we can, and we're trying to build the perfect model to build the perfect human. But that's a process that takes a long time, right? Uh, Getting people to, uh, if your question is more about how do we make sure people don't overdo habits, uh, my answer is people set goals for themselves, and if they achieve it, we consider it a success. Uh, If people accidentally go to the gym twice a day rather than once a day, I consider that a success. Um, But then if people want to reduce that amount amount of time they do something, in the same way, we'll let them commit to that goal. And that's what this app is for, for helping you reduce the desire to do stuff. There's uh, also the way that you're describing it regarding keys and double-checking your pocket. Um, I think most people do that. They check for their phone and they check for their, um, they check for their wallet when they get up, often when they leave places. Otherwise, they lose it. Uh, those are kind of habits that I find to be uh, better to have more of than less of because you, the downside of, of – not of checking your your keys all the time is that you checked your keys a lot in your pockets, but the upside is you don't get locked out of your car or your house. And so those are ones that it's like a little okay to you know overdo. Whereas other habits like um, smoking cigarettes, for example, you obviously the downside is much larger than the upside. So that's uh, that's really a, a decision or the way you frame it. I've got it. So you're saying these are low cost habits, so it's okay to overdo them. Yeah, but also that's not something that like we're not our number one habit isn't checking your keys and before you get up, right? Our number one habit. <laughs> no, no, you're trying to break, to break bigger habits. Yeah, we break. We, and again, breaking and forming are different. So breaking a habit is much different. We're talking about breaking habits like sleeping in, things that are causing people to not get their work done, not get to work. So many narcoleptics we have who have just like never been able to hold a job. Nail biting and smoking, things that are killing people or making them have extreme social shame 
hair picking, trichotillomania, which is extreme, which is very uh, socially shaming. Those are the habits that we focus on breaking, while the positive habits we help people form are related uh, right now, gratitude journals, fitness, and um, well, gratitude journal is our biggest one right now. Let's talk about sleep and then about gratitude. Sure. Now, if you sleep in so much that you can't have a job and you're narcoleptic, uh, that would be uh, that'd be a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no doubt about it. That's a habit you've got to break. But I'm not convinced that leaping out of bed uh, like instantly the second you wake up is necessarily a good move either. Neither do I. I mean, have you looked at the downside of you know, leaping out of bed because your body learned if you don't do it, you'll get shocked? I, I absolutely have looked at our users. Um, but again, then again, we should take a step back. We don't just shock our users out of bed if they don't want to be <laughs> shocked out of bed. We have a program that lets users program in their goals. So let's say they simply want to wake up in the morning and be out of bed by a specific time. They choose the stimulus pattern. So it starts off with a vibration. They have you know about 30 to 45 seconds before that increases to a beep. Then there's 30 to 45 seconds before that increases to a zap. That's the, the default program. Uh, so we find that most users will wake up and be alert by the vibration or by the beep so that they never actually get zapped. Um, we also let users just simply program in vibration alone. That's like a silent alarm. There's no zap at all whatsoever. Uh, and then there's a, the zap as well, where some users just love being zapped alert right in the morning. All of these are integrated with our sleep tracking system. So we're able to identify your stage of sleep and we begin the alarm in your light stage of sleep, which really helps people wake up. That's one of the most life-changing things uh, that, that you can do. And, and I've been doing that sort of thing for now almost 10 years. And I, I was one of those people who would definitely sleep in. I'm a, I'm a wolf is my chronotype, which means I'm one of the 15% of the population who's genetically uh, adapted to taking the night shift. Like someone mm. had to watch out for night predators while everyone <laughs> else was asleep, and that's me. And uh, this is why I, I like to say, you know, that there's no moral superiority to waking up early or staying Absolutely. up late. It's actually, it's biological. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's also why I like to say the early bird works for the late bird, but hey, that's, that's just me. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> uh, but uh, it, the idea is waking up at the right time for your biology does have, we'll, we'll call it moral superiority. At least it's a really good habit to have. Sure. But but I, I did have times in my life where I would, you know, I've slept through classes and you know, I might have been late to work more than a few times. And I haven't had that. Or your plane flight, right? Yeah. If you got a flight. Yeah, missing yeah. flights and things like that. But I, I haven't had those problems in years. But one of the reasons is that what you're doing with your system is waking up at the top of a sleep cycle. What I found after I started getting data from my sleep, um, uh, this must have been like, geez, circa 20, 2008 or something, I started doing this. It was like, oh, wait, if I wake up when I'm like in super deep sleep, I feel like a, I'm like a, a zombie and a jerk all day. Uh, or if like a, a two-year-old, when my, my kids, you know, they're older than that now, but you know, they'd come in and just jump on you and, and you're completely like way de- deep down in sleep. It, it was like, it was hard not to yell. It's like, ah, like, like what just happened? And, and so what your system is doing is you're, you're saying, wake up in this window so that it's a gentle waking, not a shocking asleep. It depends on what the user wants, okay. of course. Um, our goal is simply to make sure that the user achieves the goals they set for themselves. I don't have any moral quandaries or standards here. It's if a user wants to get up by this time, if he has a very important meeting in the morning, then he'll set the zap. Okay. If a user simply wants to wake up silently because it's feeding time for his child and he doesn't want to wake his wife, then he'll set just the vibration alarm. Okay. But what we have found is that for many users, especially a lot of users who uh, who think that they're night owls, I found that it's 
often very simple to make that change. Whether or not you have a genotype or not, uh, a phenotype is obviously the one that's, you know, not every gene is expressed. Oh, yeah. And um, for many night owls, at least self-proclaimed night owls, we found that they simply would wake up and hit the snooze button 50, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 times in bed. And that that wasn't good for them. Whether or not it was their built-in genetics, it just wasn't what they wanted with their lives. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's someone who's sleep deprived. If you need 10 plus of those things. Yeah, but it also becomes a habit. It yeah. becomes a habit for so many people that they just get used to it. Whether or not they sleep eight hours or six hours or four hours, maybe they're chronically deprived. I would uh, not debate that. But they just continue, they get used to being okay with hitting the snooze button. And so they continually hit the snooze button. Whereas if someone wakes up and shakes them out of bed, they will get up. And so we, we want to help those people who are trying to get rid of that snooze button habit. Um, we find a lot of couples are the ones that we help. Um, oh, yeah. That, uh, that were very, very good at, uh, first of all, making sure that they wake up and get out of bed. But also, secondly, they don't actually have to experience the zap very often because their brain starts to recognize that a vibration means a zap might come soon. And so they'll actually wake up alert to the vibration well before the zap. I definitely have noticed just through the years of my marriage, um, I definitely will use the snooze button pretty much one to two times every morning on purpose because there's this interesting twilight state. If you wake up at the top of a a sleep cycle where like, you know, uh, new ideas come and and like, you're not quite awake, you're not quite asleep. And that's basically writing the writing right between theta and alpha state in the brain. And if you do that and you wake up and you write down what you remembered, really good stuff happens. But if you, if you launch out of bed, you don't do that. But if you snooze 20 times, you don't do that either. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's been a quantifiable, like very noticeable change in the quality of, of like how I treat other people during the day. If I get, if I get to wake up at the top of a sleep cycle and I get, you know, 10 minutes to just slowly come back up, but I could totally. see the benefit of saying, and if I, after that 10 minutes, like the warning comes, that would be life changing uh, at the times in my life when I'd been, uh, sort of stuck where you know, I'm going to miss something important because I, I didn't have the the control or the awareness, or I don't think it was a lack of desire, but whatever it was, something wasn't working right. And I would just, you know, kind of sleep, sleep, sleep. And then two hours later, like, Oh, I just missed it. Especially when you wake up in like a deep sleep mode, you'll notice that if you look at it under like a brain scan, that the reptile part of your brain is heavily active at that time of the day. Yep. And it just, it owns you, you know, it owns you, especially in the morning, especially at that, like exact moment of wake up. And so if you wake up in your lightest stage of sleep, it's a lot easier to just wake up and not be controlled by your brain, but instead have the control to do what you think is right for your brain. Um, And that's really what it's about. It's about giving people back the control of their own behavior and not being owned by the triggers and the environment around them. So that that not being owned by the environment around you, that's it's core to biohacking. The the idea of biohacking, change the environment around you and inside you so that your body is what you want. But you also, you have some sort of fatalistic beliefs. Like like you once said, I've always been doing what I do. I'm not in control of my actions. I have very little belief in free will. I'm a behaviorist. So, I mean, it's on one hand, you say you don't believe in free will. On the other hand, you're saying, well, you know, use this tech, uh, you know, have have a Pavlok help you wake up, which allows you to exercise free will over yourself. Like, like how do you... I I don't think I've said those words. I'm not sure if you're putting words in my mouth. It's a direct quote. I wrote it down. I might've said free will in the sense of my like philosophical beliefs relating to us living in a video game. Uh, but that's, that's a a different standard. I I believe this. I think that, uh, I mean, I know that between 40 to 60% of our day is spent in automatic mode, spent in the reptile part of our brain where we have no knowledge or control over our behaviors. 
kind of like how in the morning, it's really easy to say when I get home from work, I'm going to do these things. But then when you get home, you end up vegging out and watching Netflix because the ha- whatever your habits are formed as you go through the day, you get more tired. When you get home, you just simply tend to do what you've always done. But in the morning and uh, at specific periods of time in the day, you have these uh, blistering periods of prefrontal cortex activity, these periods of free will um, in your phrasing. In these periods of decision-making capabilities, those are times where you can make massive adjustments to your environment to set up yourself for success. Um, have you heard of like the writer and the elephant uh, metaphor for, for your brain? Uh, the one where the people touch different parts of the elephant, they don't know what it is sort of thing or something else? No, it's like if you, uh, if you think of like your habits as, your, as an elephant and your consciousness as a writer, it's like... The writer can can tell the elephant where to go, but if the elephant decides he wants to go across the street and get some peanuts, he's going to cross the street and get some peanuts, and the writer can't stop him, right? Um, but what the writer could do is change the path earlier on, making sure that there are no peanuts on that road that he's going down. And so what I found, at least for myself and for the, the hundreds of users we're using our betting system with, our commitment engine, is in those periods of commitment, you can set a goal or a non-cheatable bet that changes the conversation and actions of the reptile brain. So a good example here is the betting thing I told you about with the fitness mm-hmm. uh, or the gratitude app that we have in our, in our app. So at the moment of high motivation, you're able to say, yeah, I commit to going to the gym. I'm going to put money down on this or I'm going to put volts down on this. And at that moment, you've now created a non-cheatable environment that your reptile brain will respond to when it's in control. And so those are the small little periods of, of free will that I think I have in my day-to-day routine, I optimize by setting a bet that I can make sure that I, I know I will commit to because my reptile brain doesn't like losing bets. Uh, so that's how I see the brain. Um, using your periods of awareness in order to create a new contextual environment that your reptile brain is likely to follow through with. Do you believe that the reptile brain is a separate consciousness from our consciousness? No, I don't think it's conscious. I, I think that consciousness is a byproduct of billions of neurons that evolved over billions of years. Uh, and I don't think the reptile brain is anything different. Like, there's no physical difference. I mean, there is a physical difference, but there's it's it's interconnected. It's much um, it's much it's very interconnected. There's a great book on this called uh, "Why Everyone Else Is a Hypocrite," and it talks about how there's not one brain, there's not three brains, but there's billions of neurons that all evolved over billions of years in order to exist and that they all work in a very interesting pattern just for you know the selfish gene continuing to exist and that they're not different beings within you that's just a really good model that allows human beings to allows you know me to understand how i act most of the day Um, but at the end of the day it's just billions of interconnected neurons that all do stuff I also think that when I think about consciousness as a byproduct, there's a really cool study where um, they wanted to see if when you make a decision, like you say, I'm pressing the button, if you say I'm pressing the button and you press a button at the same time and brain activity occurs at the same time, that probably means that consciousness is the first step in a decision-making process. But vice versa, if if the scientists were able to see brain activity light up before you said I'm pressing this button, then probably there was some kind of interaction going on in your brain that happened before the conscious brain got wind of it. They expected to see somewhere between, I think, 200 and 400 milliseconds of, uh, of gap before-wise. 
I think they found two seconds, two full seconds where the brain made the decision before the conscious brain said, I'm making the decision. And I found that very insightful. Uh, yeah, that that's a, a core part of some of the stuff that I write and I talk about is that your body knows all sorts of stuff and makes all kinds of decisions that you ascribe to yourself that actually weren't yep. your decision. But there are other yep. times where you actually make a decision and then the body follows. And and the, sure. the path to becoming a better human being is making more of the decisions that your body follows uh, and exactly. listening to what your body tells you and then deciding whether you're going to allow it to make that decision or not. And that's hundred percent agree. And that's what every meditation practice on the planet is basically teaching you to do at some level. And it's, it's interesting when you start tying devices in, whether it's you know, neurofeedback, uh, whether it's um, just basic movement detection, uh, with sleep detection with respiration and heart rate, heart rate variability, all the things, a lot of which you've built into your, your device. Uh, it, all, all of these are, are ways to sort of short circuit some of what you would learn sitting in a cave for 20 years outside a monastery somewhere. Totally. It's just the signal makes it a lot faster. Absolutely. And I think that um, one thing that, that kind of becomes a misconception with Pavlock is that we're not a meditation device. We're not an awareness device. And no. um, the part that is uh, maybe we should focus more on this in our explanations. But when you add a zap, uh, you know, when you're like in your day to day routine and suddenly your child jumps on your arm or, or, or yells and suddenly you become yep. aware and snap out of whatever you're doing. That's like a moment of awareness. That's the prefrontal cortex activity. And a zap simulates that touch on skin, that touch that makes you aware. And so what this, the Pavlov's goal is, is really to knock you out of automatic mode and bring you into the present. And in a lot of ways, um, especially if you test using it with uh, the Muse d device, the EEG device that tracks your brain, yep. uh, your EEG levels and gives you a calm score. Um, if you zap yourself instead, uh, you know, uh, with meditation, you try to bring yourself back gently to your breath. I started adding a zap when I lost focus on my breath and my calm score instantly shot up. It became more aware and it quieted my reptile brain or my anxieties and brought me into the present, allowing me to control my, my focus. It's funny. One of the forms of neurofeedback that we use at, at Bulletproof Labs in Santa Monica is you're listening to this really nice, relaxing music. And then as soon as your brain starts to lose focus, go into a, another state, even if it's a state you want, just whatever state it's in, the music gets static and it and it's irritating. Exactly. And just that minor minor irritation just tells the brain, oh, I, I guess I should pay attention to where I am now. And and if you go back to like a more of the Japanese style of, of Zen meditation, you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're meditating. And if the meditation teacher, uh, you know, usually a monk of some sort, notices you losing focus during your meditation, like they'll hit you yep. with a stick. Yep. <laughs> Not hard enough to like cause damage, but it's like, hey, pay attention. And, and that thing is, it's actually a really powerful thing. And it may be missing from a lot of meditation practices are like, I'm just going to sort of be half asleep and, and all this. Uh, but there's also a downside risk to this, Manish. And this has always been my my biggest concern as you know, a, a supporter and investor is that if you build too much of the automatic flinch response into meditation, into habit formation, and all that, um, that can also become neurologically expensive because then it's almost like a little bit of trauma every time. You're like, I was going to do that. Nope, I can't. So, so the the challenge for you, and I think you've you've elucidated this pretty well in this interview, but the challenge for you is making sure that you achieve that middle ground where where you don't create more uh, more automatic responses to avoid trauma or to avoid bad habits uh, than than is beneficial. And, and do you have control systems in place for that? 
hundred percent. Number one thing is that Zap is not the core of Pavlock. Zap is one of the stimuli, right? So vibration patterns and the audio sounds are used far more than the Zap. Um, in the same way, like if you want to train a dog not to run outside of a of a area, you don't just zap the dog every time he runs outside the area. You start by vibrating and then beeping and then zapping. It's building up to a neurological response. You don't want to just simply throw them into a zap. Uh, it's not ethical and it doesn't work very well. Um, so the first thing there is that the zap is like a last resort. It's not the core of the product. Oh, okay, so so it's gently guiding you back into awareness when you're when you're following a bad habit or you've you're not doing what you told yourself you're going to do. Exactly. So your unconscious behavior percentage drops, and and the zap is is your body knows it's there and it maybe the awareness comes before the ow comes. Exactly, exactly, hundred percent true. And in the same way, it's just that when people make commitments with no disincentive, if they say I'm going to go to the gym this year, but there's no cost if they don't go. A commitment without a penalty is not a commitment. It's a nice to have. And so what happens is that people never stick through with their New Year's resolutions and they never stick through with their goals. But if there is a slight disincentive, like if I don't go to work, I'll be fired. What happens is they first of all go to work. And then over time, they start to enjoy going to work. They get used to the path. They get used to the drive. They have a social relationship at that job. And it becomes a habit, a positive habit. And so, like I said at the beginning, the act of habit formation is not shock you when you're bad. It's zap you or let you know you might be zapped if you don't get started. But once you get started, help guide you to keep you uh, with positive reinforcement as you do positive behaviors to make the habit stick in a positive way. So it's just a tool. One of the tools stimuli and effects is a punisher, but majority of it is focused around positive rewards. All right, I, I'm going to put on my dystopian hat here. Sure. Uh, so let's say you're running a giant social media company <laughs> and uh, you have the ability to have people wearing these devices. The original Pavlock actually locked on your wrist, right? <laughs> the idea was, yeah. Uh, exactly. That's why it's called Pavlock instead of Pavlov. And uh, okay, so anytime someone doesn't check their social media every 30 seconds, <laughs> you're just going to warn them. And I mean, there are there are governments around the planet who are, you know, they're getting to the point where they can track everyone all the time. They know exactly where you are, exactly what you're doing, uh, and and probably wouldn't be averse to using this kind of tech. I mean, do you do you worry about the downside of building habits that are not self-serving because someone else has control of the tech? A hundred percent. I worry about this all the time. And like I say all the time to people, if anybody else was building Pavlock in a similar system, I'd be very worried about it. And so I have to build it so they don't do it first. I'm a pretty chill guy. I'm not here to try to destroy the world. I'm here to help people get control of their behavior and upgrade humanity as a whole. And to me, that is extremely important. And so um, the, the, there's obviously ways that you could take the idea of Zap that is remote controlled or automatic and convert it into a dystopian world. And in order to stop that from happening, it's really important that we stay ethical, that we stay decentralized and democratic. And that's a very, very core part of our mission and our vision. Um, giving people the, the capability to control their own behavior, not some third party who's watching you controlling yours. One of the reasons that I, I named this this movement, this community, biohacking, is is that I'm literally a computer hacker by training, you know, computer security, cloud computing, and all that. And the role of hackers has always been to say, well, I can do this myself instead of ceding control to someone else. And mm -hmm. the 
original thing was was Linux, you know, this open source operating system, which is now like built into huge, uh, huge numbers of things. In fact, I guarantee you that the ones and zeros that are our conversation flowing back and forth to each other are flowing through Linux-based systems. And mm-hmm. Linux was cool because you could actually see all the code versus, say, a Microsoft or any of the other big uh, closed source companies where you couldn't actually tell what it was doing. And so what hackers do is they say, well, we're going to build a system where we know what's going on inside because otherwise someone else will build a system and they know what's going on inside and they set it up for their own interests. And when I realized because of the anti-aging research that I've been doing just for a long time in a nonprofit, I'm like, wait, there's all kinds of technologies that affect our brain state, affect our behavior, affect how long we're going to live, how much attention we have. Uh, and all those things, we know that they work. Like different pools of research from different disciplines know this. But they haven't been pulled together. And if we don't do it as hackers who say this is our birthright, like this is something that's ours, that they will be taken up commercially. They'll be taken up by governments. And uh, what ends up happening is they'll build systems that that meet their goals, not my goals. So like we, we kind of have this duty as human beings exactly. to be able to look at the source code, to be able to know to be able to know what's in there all the way. And, and one of the problems with social media right now is that no one knows what the algorithms do. And we have this whole industry like SEO optimization and, and you know, social media marketing, which is all about guessing what's inside this incredibly complex rule set, knowing that they change the rules as soon as we all figure it out. And, and this, is, uh, this is one of those problems where like, how are we going to solve this? And I think hacking is the only way, which means, well, we build systems where we know what's going on. And I, I mean, do you open source your patents? Do I remember something about that? 100%. We open sourced all our patents. Anybody's allowed to make their own padlock if they want. We provide um, all of our open source, all of our code is available on demand on request. And our goal is to create an open source platform for behavior change. So everything is about transparency and about the ability for anybody to know what's actually going on. A lot of this is done through machine learning. A lot of this is done through automatic uh coding so it's not just hard coded in um, it's designed to learn but it's designed to be open specifically like the the vision of pavlock is very much uh, the the hardware device pavlock is is a step it's the first step in in the grand vision but our big vision is about creating a a new economy uh, we have a digital currency called volts which will be a cryptocurrency which is created mined by doing healthy habits and that that's it's about uh basically being able to distribute resources to people based on doing positive things for themselves. Not about getting paid by what other people want them to do, but instead getting paid by committing to the goals and achieving the goals that we set for ourselves. So the entire vision and the entire ethos of Pavlock is not about someone else controlling you or someone telling you what to do. It's about giving you the power and the rewards to be able to do what you set for yourself. That uh, it, it makes sense on its face, and and I think we are up for the next you know, ten years of, of pretty interesting stuff happening, especially in, in different regions globally. You know, some areas of the world are very open to new technology. Um, even going back to like as far as two thousand three, when I first did my first stick on heart rate monitor, like we couldn't do any of that in the U.S. because it was going to cost like fifty million dollars or something. So we did it in Singapore and in Med City mm-hmm. in India. So we have these pockets of innovation, but all of those areas where there's pockets of innovation are also uh, open to some pretty weird stuff happening if the wrong people are are running the tech that sets these algorithms for how we behave. So I totally agree. I, I remain hopeful that good things are going to happen, but I'm I'm also a little bit 
a little bit skeptical just because there are, there are people out there who, who will not use all these biohacking technologies for our own ends. They'll use them for their ends. And it's, it's a level of power that we haven't had as human beings over other humans. I completely agree. And I, I hyper respect having people who are skeptical who surround me. It's one of the most important things for making sure that we stay aligned with our long-term goals. Um, you should note that a lot of what we're trying to do is by bringing power back to the individual. So, for example, we won't be allowing uh, the device to be controlled by anybody unless you give access to it, for example. Our coding is built on the individual holding the controls, the individual having the ability to set commitments and stick to them. But if an individual doesn't like what they're doing, they're stuck to their, they're beholden to their own commitments, but they're never beholden to the commitments of somebody else. And that's a very, very important part. It's such a slippery slope though. Like I've been looking at employee wellness for a long time. And let's say that you're wearing a Pavlock and, and it gets all sorts of data like heart rate variability and, and things that are good measures of, of how you're doing biologically. Now, if your employer says, well, I'm only going to pay for your health insurance if you give me the data. At a certain point, you're like, I guess I'm going to give up the data. And then the next step is, well, you know, uh, we'll, we'll give you a bonus. So that's what we want to stop against. That's what we're trying to, to, to stop from happening. It's not about employers buying you the product. It's about the product. So the, the key here is this Volt's cryptocurrency. Okay. And in this currency, it's uh, a currency that's created by the individual. So it's actually created by an individual sticking to what they commit to. And the money come, the, the, the long-term vision um, within 10 years, so medium-term vision, is that any person anywhere in the world who sticks through with their daily habit, say walk 10,000 steps a day, earns the equivalent of $30,000 a year, the American average salary. Whether you're in Africa or in America, our goal is to get complete distribution to everyone in the world and allow any user uh, anywhere in the world to be able, whether you're an American or an African, uh, to be able to earn the same amount of what would be uh, about 30K in the US uh, against the US dollar. And that vision is pretty complex, and you can learn more about that at pavlock.com slash volts. Um, the details are, are there. But the basic system of it is around you committing to yourself by replacing the need for a uh, by a for a currency that's owned by your employer or owned by your government and instead creating a currency that's created by yourself. And so this is the ultimate vision of what we're trying to do, which is about bringing economics back to the people. Well, may, maybe there's our universal basic income when AI takes most of the jobs. All you have to do is follow the the, the good habits. Although man, exactly. I think I might want that's to game that system. My habit is, you know, eat six pieces of junk food every day. Uh, whew, I, exactly. I made that you one and smoked two packs a day. And, <laughs> whew, I, all right, I got my. <laughs> so we'll we'll see how that works out. But I I admire the the futuristic thinking and uh, and the the core desire. And we've hung out enough that I I, I do know you're working to make the world a better place. Uh, sometimes I think you're a pretty odd duck, uh, but that's actually a compliment, not a not an insult in any way. Uh, exactly. You're uh, you're a non non traditional and sometimes non linear thinker, but you're definitely thinking, which is which is really cool. Uh, Thank you. Manisha, I asked you a few years ago when you were on the show last, uh, the, the Bulletproof Radio question, and I'm going to ask it to you again because I doubt you remember your answer. Uh, if someone came to you tomorrow and they said, look, I'm going to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what are your three most important pieces of advice for me? Uh, what would you offer them? If I want to perform better at everything I do? As a human being. just In other words, it, it's not about just at work or whatever else, but like just being a better, higher functioning human. I think that the first thing, and maybe this is, all three. Um, but there are six habits that I think if every single person in the world followed through with, and they're fairly simple, it would improve the majority of illnesses and the majority of mental health issues and the majority of dissatisfaction, unhappiness. And so 
I would have the people do those six habits. And those habits are sleep between seven and eight hours a night, drink about two liters of water a day, uh, meditate 10 minutes a day, exercise uh, three times a week, uh, eat a fairly nutritious, not too many calories meal every day, and uh, have social contact with people that you like daily. If people were to follow those six things, every part of their life gets better. And so that would be, first of all, the number one thing I would say, which is optimize for those six habits, spend time forming those habits. Is that good for one? Can I give two more? I, that sounded like you just doubled the three, but I right, give me two more. <laughs> sure. The first one is optimize for those habits. The second one is to create those habits. Start off by following a disincentive system. Set a bet to do that and watch what happens. Um, I wrote a great article on your website about how to form habits. And oh. I talk about setting bets and then using that to create long-lasting habits. Uh, so that's goal two. And goal three would be to obviously check out Pavlock. Pavlock <laughs> <Paladin Cox's laughs> nice. Subtle It'll plug you get there, there. <laughs> <laughs> Learning from the best, Dave. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I I love it, and uh, your URL is p a v l o c k dot com. No, p a v l o k. Like there six you go. I spelled it wrong. I, I'm like a great early investor. P a v l o k. I always I know it's one of the two, but I always just have a fifty fifty chance. Yeah. I, I guess I should get it's shocked like, when I spell it wrong. Yeah, you you quickly learn, sir. It's like Pavlov, but with a K. All right, got it. Um, Manish, thanks for sharing your your vision of the future and your new tech. And, and I know that you've got uh, like the version two that just came out with a lot more of the tracking stuff in it, which I'm really intrigued by. Definitely. Uh, so if you're listening to this, you're a biohacker, you're looking for uh, some new technology to help you with uh, habit formation, habit change, and just know what's going on in there. Uh, Manish has put a lot of stuff together and you can look at all the code if you want to, which is kind of cool. Uh, all right, Manish. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Head on over to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you straight to the iTunes store where you can leave a quick review for Bulletproof Radio to tell people that this show is worth their time. Uh, we're somewhere around 75 million downloads now, and it's continuing to grow. It's won a Webby Award, and this happens because of you. So I'm really grateful that you listen to the show, grateful that you listen to every show, and if you can just pay it forward by saying it's worth your time, I see those numbers, and I'm grateful for them. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.